we begin an exciting series on revivals, visitations and moves of God. Revival is a community saturated with God. We look at a few stories of revival from church history and respond to the call to prepare our hearts for revival. All right, so we're going to make a declaration if you don't mind. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew the 17th chapter. We just quickly uh, look at verse 20 just to remind ourselves on Jesus teaching about faith. You know, the Lord Jesus taught a lot on the subject of faith as he interacted with people, as he worked with people, um, with his disciples. He taught us how to use our faith, how to live by faith, how to exercise our faith. He taught us to do that. Now, in all of his ministry, as he worked with people, there was one thing that he really expected of people who came to him. He really expected people to come with faith, to have faith. So although the things that he was doing and the things that he was, uh, the healings and, and the things that he was ministering, uh, he wasn't charging for it. He was not saying, okay, $10, you know, or, or none of that. It was all free. Yet, there was one requirement, there was one thing he wanted people to come with, and it was faith in their hearts. And he also taught his disciples how they could use faith to minister to other people. So here in Matthew 17, there's a situation. The disciples have, have, have up until this time, they have seen good success. They have gone around, they have preached They have healed the sick. They have cast out devils. They have seen miracles taking place in the name of Jesus. But they run into this one particular situation where a man brings his son who has been troubled with demons. And uh, uh, they didn't see success. So they go back to the Lord. This is in Matthew 17 and verse 20 and uh, uh, verse 19. And they ask him, Lord, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus had come. He delivered the boy. So later on, the disciples asking him, why could we not do it? We have seen success before. We have seen other people healed and delivered. And so Jesus responds and he says in verse 20, because of your unbelief. Because of your unbelief. You see, he didn't say, you know, you didn't use the right method. You should use method number 15 in this case. You know, he didn't say, well, uh, you know, you guys didn't pray enough or you guys didn't. Uh, you know, he said, the root cause is your unbelief in this, in this situation. Because of your unbelief. And then he tells them about faith. He teaches them about faith once again. He says, because remember what I've told you. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea. And uh, nothing and it shall be moved, and nothing will be impossible to you. He said, nothing will be impossible to you. So here's the possibilities. The possibility awaits each one of us. And the possibility is this, that nothing will be impossible for us. Do you believe that? These are the words of Jesus. That as believers... He said, this is the possibility. Nothing will be impossible to you. No situation, no mountain, no sickness, no disease, no demonic work. 
uh, is going to stop you. Nothing is impossible. But here's the key. You need to have faith and then speak your faith. Speak to the mountain. Amen? And this is available for all of us. For all of us to move into and say, God, I want to move in that kind of faith. I want to have that kind of faith. I want to be in that place where nothing is impossible to me. Whatever it takes, I want to journey into it in a place where nothing is impossible. I mean, no mountain, whether it's a demonic work, whether it's a sickness or a disease or a financial situation or something else that we face in life, nothing is impossible. Jesus said, if you have faith, you speak your faith, nothing will be impossible. So I want to encourage us. See, this is the possibility that awaits you and me. Let's press into it. So Lord, whatever it takes... I want to get into that, that kind of faith, right? And I want to be able to move mountains, see things change. I want to be able to do that. So that's one reason why we train ourselves Sunday after Sunday to stand up and speak. Don't be afraid to speak your faith, to say what you believe in your heart. Amen? So let's stand up to our feet right now. We're going to make our declaration. We're going to say what God has said about us. Say it because you believe it. No matter what your situation is like today, Say it because this is God's word. Let's say it together. This is God's word. This is God speaking to me. I am who God says I am. I can do what God says I can do. I will become everything God has promised. I am saved, healed, delivered, redeemed. I am blessed, victorious, prosperous, triumphant. I'm a minister of God. A servant of Christ and a channel of his blessing to many people. I receive his word. I believe his word and I live by his word. Christ is my master and to him I am in absolute surrender. In Jesus name. Amen. God bless you. Shake hands with the person sitting next to you. Tell them hi, hello, give them your name. And you may be seated this morning. The, uh, the whole subject of revivals uh, is not new to us as a church. Uh, if you've been here for some time, you've, you've seen that uh, we have visited this topic time and time again. Uh, we've, we've talked about revivals in 2008 especially. It was a uh, it was a year when we spent a lot of time talking about the outpouring of the Spirit and, and trying to journey into that. And uh, here we are, 2016, about eight years later, and we are back on the same topic. We're going to talk about revivals, visitations, and moves of God once again. We're going to spend uh, a, a good number of weeks on this all the way to the end of February. We're going to talk about revivals. And... Um, uh, this time around, we are going to give you uh, a publication that has uh, this entire series of teaching. We did that recently at our Christian Leaders Conference. We will be doing the same teaching uh, around the country, ministering, talking about this uh, at uh, different leaders' conferences. Uh, because we feel that this is, is so important for the church to be able to press into revival, to be able to uh, experience revival uh, in this day, in this hour. Uh, uh, in our city and also in our nation. It's very important. Uh, and um, 
One of the things that you'll find in the book is a timeline of the history of the church, starting right from the birth of Jesus, from the birth of the church, 30 AD, all the way through today. Uh, there's a chapter on the timeline that has all the key events that, that shaped the life of the church. Uh, the key people that God used, you have reformers, you have revivalists, you have missionaries, uh, and, and, and uh, mission move, missionary movements that took place that shaped the life of the church, and, and, and several things that you'll find. And it's very interesting to look at how God has helped bring the church to where it is today. It's important to know history so that we can correctly interpret the present and prepare for the future. So history is important. Now, one of the things we find in the history of the church is that the Reformation, which began around 1517, uh, in the year 1517 with Martin Luther uh, posting his 95 thesis on the door of the church in Wittenberg in Germany, The Reformation began at that time, although prior to that, there were significant, uh, there were men who made significant contribution to trying to awaken the church uh, and bring about Reformation. Martin Luther is the one uh, that's, that's known for really bringing about the change. But 200 years from then, 1517 through about the 1700s, we see many Reformation movements spreading in different parts of Europe. Starting in Germany, we go into Switzerland and other places. Uh, we see a number of other groups arising that began to uh, bring about reformation in the life of the church. Primarily calling people back to the Bible. Let's read the word of God. Let's believe the truth that's in the word. That we are saved by faith through grace. And let's begin to do the things that are in the word of God. So you find that in that 200 year period. Subsequent to that, what is very interesting is we begin to see the birthing or the initiating of many revivals that take place around the world. One of the foremost revivals that we see right after the Reformation period is the revi- the, what, what is known as the Moravian Revival. 1727, the Moravian Revival. This morning, what, what we are going to do is just listen to a couple of revival stories. Is that okay? All right, that's all. I'm just going to talk to you about a few stories, and then you go home. But don't make it a bedtime here, right? <laughs> This is not bedtime stories. That's revival stories. You've got to be fired up. It's not meant to put anybody to sleep, right? So we're just going to talk about some, a few revival stories. Uh, just as an appetizer as a, uh, for what is coming up in this whole series as we talk about revivals, visitations, and moves of God. Uh, just to give us a kind of an understanding of what revival is and, and, and looking at the possibilities that, you know, these things have happened in the history of the church and God is waiting to do it again. And uh, this morning we're going to just look at a couple of these revival stories uh, in fact, when you look at the history of the church, you will find revivals breaking out on every continent. It happens in India, it happens in North America, South America, in Europe, in Africa, uh, in, across China, and, and many other parts of the world. And you'll have this in the book, and you can see for yourself what God has done in the history of the church across the globe. So this morning, just pardon me, we're going to look at just a few stories just to help us uh, see some of the things that God has happened, God has done. One of the... Uh, Now, let me just back up and, and, and make this statement here. When we say revival, what are we talking about? I just like to quote Duncan Campbell, so we just back up a bit. 
Duncan Campbell was a revivalist, one of the people used in the revival in the Hebrides Islands. And here's how he captured or described revival. He says, revival is a community saturated with God. So think about a community, us people, saturated with God. Meaning, God just moving upon us, through us, filling every part of our life. Not just on Sunday morning, you come, we have a nice worship time, experience a little bit of God, go home. No, but in your home, in our homes, in our places of work, wherever this community goes, God is. And we are saturated. God working through us, moving amongst us and and impacting the world because of a community that is saturated with God. I think this is a powerful description of what revival is. So now let's just talk about the 1727 Moravian revival. Five years prior to 1727, in 1722, there were several Moravian families who because of the religious persecution in their area, in Bohemia, moved across into Germany and uh, built a small community community called Hernhut in Germany. And you'll see it on the map. It's on the east corner of Germany. And so they came and settled down, these families, these Moravian families, they came and settled down uh, on the estate of a man named Count Zinzendorf, who at that time was just about 27 years old. Just a young man, he welcomed these refugees, he let them settle down on his estate. And he noticed that many of these people were in conflict with each other, there's a lot of strife and so on. So in the month of May, uh, May we have the date here, May 12th, 1727, he brought these people together. He spent about three hours trying to foster and encourage unity among them. And, and he brought them to a place of forgiveness and to get rid of their uh, past quarreling and to begin to live in love and simplicity and establish uh, a Christian community. A couple of months later, on August 13th, 1727, he brought these people together. Uh, for a time of prayer, they had communion together. Uh, they were in a time of worship. When the congregation felt an unusual presence of the Holy Spirit moving among them. It was very different. And when the Holy Spirit moved so powerfully, all of their previous differences and those kinds of things just melted away. There was something unusual happening at that time. So the people recognized that something unusual was happening and, uh, and, and, Count, Nick, and Count Zinzendorf, he, he records, he says, you know, that day it seemed like heaven, it was, seemed like being in heaven. Such was the experience of the people at that time. And so in, in response to what they sensed God doing amongst them, 24 men and 24 women made a covenant together, they made a pact together, saying, we are going to pray, each one of us are going to commit to praying one hour a day, and we're going to pray non-stop for 24 hours every day. So they made little groups, each one taking a certain hour of the day, and they started praying. The wonderful thing is that this prayer meeting, among that community, this was a little community of a few, less than 100 people to start with, But when they sensed the move of God and they decided to begin to pray like this, this prayer meeting went on non-stop for 100 years in that little community. 
And they began to experience the move of God amongst them. Within the first five years, they sent their first two missionaries out into the West Indies. Two young men went out as missionaries. Within the first 25 years, they sent out 200 missionaries. Within 25 years. Now think about this. We at APC, we've been in existence for 15 years. How many missionaries have we sent out? But they in 25 years, a small community, sent out 200 missionaries. People went out to different continents, different places. And they gave birth to what today is formerly known as the Protestant World Mission Movement. They sent missionaries into uh, the Virgin Islands, Greenland, Turkey, the Gold Coast of Africa, South Africa, North America. And these missionaries went, they had powerful impact. And, and, and some, great, some of the great men who came on later, like William Carey, George Whitfield, John Wesley, were people who were influenced by these Moravian missionaries who had gone out. Now, what can we learn from this story? And I very quickly summarized it. Today in Hernhut, they have archives of letters that have come back from, all, from their missionaries all around the world. And they have records of what God has done. It's an amazing uh, uh, history that that town has. What can you and I learn? First of all, we see the importance of unity, of people being united together. And unity really paved the way for God to initiate, for God to release a move of His Spirit amongst them. They got rid of their differences. The other thing we see is when they sensed God doing something unusual, they responded. They didn't say, wow, that was a nice service, pastor. We'll see you next Sunday. They responded. They said, you know, God has, is doing something very different amongst us. Let's respond. And they responded in prayer. And this prayer was not, you know, let's just meet 30 minutes before service. But it was a prayer that, that, was, that, that cost them something. That demanded unusual commitment. They said, we are going to commit ourselves to praying 24 hours a day. We're going to get this together. And we're going to keep at it. And we're going to do it. And that just fanned the flames of revival in that community. And it nurtured so many people. Imagine growing up in a community, community of where there is constant prayer going on. Imagine raising sons and daughters in that kind of an atmosphere. And so they were able to send out missionaries and actually spread the fires of revival. What God released in that little town actually impacted the nations. Amen? Another great revival story that I want to share. And again, uh, we're going to look at a few North American revivals and one from our own nation today. Uh, in the book that you'll receive, you'll see stories of revivals across all continents. So it's not, very, not biased or God doesn't favor North America. Just that this morning I'm sharing a few stories from there. In 1800s, we see the second great awakening in North America. A powerful season of revival. The spiritual and moral condition in North America at that time, to, at the turn of the 1800s, was very bleak. The Methodist... The, the Presbyterians and the Methodists were the leading denominations at that time there. And they were losing church people, losing members. Nobody was coming to church. People were just, the churches were dwindling. 
the condition was very bad. The, the Lutherans and the Episcopalians were also losing people to the point where the Episcopalian church wanted to merge with the Lutheran church because they didn't have too many people. One of the Episcopalian bishops wanted to step down because he had nobody to minister to, no work to do. In one particular church, the pastor said in 16 years, he saw only one young person added to the church. That's pretty bad. So the spiritual conditions are very bad. And, and because of the French Renaissance and the American Revolution at that time, college campuses were completely filled with students who uh, were de- devout atheists. Yale University had one professed, professing Christian on, in the entire student body. And I think... Dartmouth College or another college had like two professing Christians in the entire student body. The, the, the campuses says we don't want anything to do with God. That was the spiritual condition. So towards the turn of the 18, uh, 1800s, around this time, there was a Baptist pastor. This was in 1794, six years before. There was a Baptist pastor. His name was Isaac Bacchus. He, he was in New England area. Seeing all of this, he was so burdened, he sent an appeal letter across all, to pastors, across all denominations saying, we need to pray for revival across America. So churches across America started praying for revival. In 1794, uh, again, another 23 ministers in the New England area that same year, they got together and they said, we also need to include church people to start praying for revival. So they sent out a call for revival. Uh, saying, you know, we want people in the church also to start praying for revival. And uh, uh, they would start, they, they made four small prayer groups. Uh, they set aside uh, one day a month uh, to pray uh, and half an hour every Saturday morning for prayer. So they, they set aside dedicated time. To start praying. So there were pastors across all denominations praying. There were people forming uh, small groups in churches across America praying for revival. They set aside dedicated time. Uh, In response to the same call for revival in 1796. uh, And I'm just going to look, you know, share stories about certain uh, revivals that broke out. But really this great awakening was, was something that took place all across America. So we're looking at the state of Kentucky. And in 1796, there was, a, uh, uh, there was this pres- a Presbyterian pastor named James McReady. He had three small congregations uh, in Logan County. The biggest congregation he had was, was 25 people. And Logan County at that time was infested with criminals simply because law enforcement was very weak. So criminals across America, if they want to escape law, they go to Logan County, settle there. So here's a county with criminals in it. Pastor James McGrady in 1796, in response to this call for prayer, he goes to his congregation, he says, look, we need to start praying for revival every Saturday morning, every Sunday morning. We want to keep one day aside a month. The third Saturday of every month, we want to fast and pray for revival. Remember, his congregation was really small. Just 25 people was the biggest congregation. Yeah, three little congregations. And that gives hope for us. Sunday morning prayer, five, six people show up. You know, <laughs> There's hope. <laughs> but he got his people to pray. Saturday morning, Sunday morning, and one Saturday every month. Fast and pray. 
So they began to pray. Now they went on for, uh, this was in 1796, so they went on for four years, nothing really seemed to be happening. But at the turn of the century, June of 1800, they, had, they were having a four day meeting. And in one of the services, suddenly they felt an unusual move of the Holy Spirit. It was unusual because people were being affected. They started crying, they started weeping, they started repenting uh, and calling out to God and, and crying out for their own salvation. There were two visiting Methodist ministers who were ministering on the last two days. And one of them, William McGee, he, this is what he records. He says, People cried and wept. Others fell to the floor under deep conviction, praying, crying, weeping, and seeking God for an assurance of personal salvation. Something unusual was happening. In July, the next month, he had a similar meeting in another branch church, in Gasper River Church. So this one was Red River Church in Logan County. Next month, in Gasper River Church, they had a meeting. And the news spread and people came over 100, they traveled one, more than 100 miles. They came to this meeting. They came determined to wait for the Spirit to descend again. And they came prepared to stay until revival came. Like they were desperate. They came together. And then they saw a great move of the Spirit. And the rest is history because now crowds started coming. They moved out of the church building onto the open campsite. And that was the beginning of what was known as camp meetings. Where crowds of people would gather on campsites and, and preachers would go around preaching and, and, and amazing things would happen. Here's another interesting thing. There was a man, a pastor named Barton Stone from Cambridge, again from the state of Kentucky, who came, who saw what was happening here in Logan County. He went back to his own church. He got them to start praying. And the following year, August 6 of 1801, uh, at Cambridge, they experienced the powerful move of the Holy Spirit. And God started moving there in Cambridge. And uh, soon crowds of people started coming, filling up the campgrounds. And uh, the, the move of God's Spirit was so powerful. Uh, 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 it says at one time, there were 25,000 people packed in the campgrounds. Now remember, these are small churches used to 50 people, 25 people. Now there are 25,000 people in the parking lot, in the campsite, in the campground. And they didn't have PA systems then. So what did they do? They made teams of preachers. And uh, at any given point, there will be seven different preachers preaching around the campground. So you pick your sermon, you know. <laughs> now, there were seven different preachers preaching around the campground uh, at the same time. But the move of the Holy Spirit was so powerful. Here's a, a, an eyewitness account here. Um, James Crawford, who was one of the ministers uh, present, he reported about 3,000 people flat on the ground slain in the Spirit. Imagine 3,000 people all on the ground. He records people breaking out in loud laughter. Some ran, some shouted. Others even barked like dogs as they ran. They held onto tree trunks, crying out in repentance. People treated the devil as this manifestation came to be called. 
James Findlay, another Methodist preacher, he describes what he saw. He says, the noise was like the roar of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. I counted seven ministers, all preaching at one time, some on stumps, others in wagons, and one standing on a tree which had, fall, which had in falling lodged against another. It was an amazing one. This was just in one state. The numerical results were astounding. Between 1800 to 1803, in the state of Kentucky alone, the Baptist churches added 10,000 new members. And the Methodists added 40,000. That had to be a work of God. This is only in one state. But the move of God spread all across the country. And what about these college campuses? In the college campuses, the Spirit of God began to move. At Yale University, the then president, Timothy Dwight, who was a grandson of Jonathan Edwards, a great revivalist used in the first great awakening. He was talking to his college students and suddenly the wave of the Spirit began to move upon them. And in the college campus where there was only one professing Christian, 50% of them turned their lives and gave, gave their lives over to Jesus Christ. Half the student body. Revival fires moved across on, in other college campuses, Dartmouth, Williams College, and, and, and many other cities where it is recorded. Now these college campuses became like little Christian communities, like little heavens on earth. This was the move of the holy. What can we learn from this account, from this revival? Once again, we see prayer as the key. United prayer, people coming together in prayer. Churches coming together in prayer, being fervent in prayer. We see, the other thing we see is there were unusual manifestations. And remember, this was Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran churches having this unusual manifest. They were not used to this. But the nice thing is that the leaders, even though at the first instant they were startled, they just kept going and they saw the fruit of it. They saw changed lives. And so they didn't stop the manifestations, which to them at that time was very difficult to handle. We see transformation of communities. Logan County, a community infested with criminals, was transformed. College campuses with uh, uh, atheists, students who were given atheism, turned around. By a move of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about one more revival in 1857. Again from North America. Which, was known as, which is known today as the Layman's Prayer Revival. Began in New York. Again this is a very, very amazing, astounding move of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I want to talk about it this morning. Around that time, economically things were very bad in America. The banking system... And the United States had collapsed and hundreds of thousands in the New England area, New York area were without jobs. About 30, in New York itself, 30,000 people were un- unemployed. But on the spiritual side, there was a great preaching on revival through Charles Finney and his team members. Uh, Walter and Phoebe pa- Palmer were preaching about revival. And so there was a great stirring in the hearts of people to begin to cry out to God for revival. And so churches started praying. In 1840, churches in Boston began to engage in prayer for revival. They formed prayer groups and began to pray. And so they started preparing the soil through prayer. 
praying, God, we need a visitation. We need revival. We need you, God. They began to pray. Now, in 1857, Jeremiah Lanfear was a Methodist missionary. He was sent as a city missionary to New York. So here he shows up in New York. He's a missionary. He's got to do something. And uh, God gives him an idea. The idea is so simple. Start a midday prayer meeting. Between 12 o'clock and 1 o'clock. Start a prayer meeting. Because that's the time people have lunch and they rest. Before they start work again. So Jeremiah Lanfear, what he does is. He prints a few pamphlets distributes it, and he's got a place. It's the Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street. And on September 23rd, 1857, he, has, he holds his first midday prayer meeting. And like our Sunday morning service, six people show up. <laughs> Sunday morning, I'm talking about a prayer time. Right? So first prayer meeting, six people came praying. But the next week, 20 people. The third week, 40 people. The fourth week, 100. And soon that whole church building, the Dutch Reformed Church, was packed with 3,000 people coming in the afternoon to pray. And uh, prayer meetings were started in other parts of New York with the attendance going to 10,000 people in prayer during lunchtime. I remember no Facebook, no WhatsApp, nothing to keep informing people come for prayer. None of that. This was just a move of God's Holy Spirit. When you get 10,000 people coming for prayer during lunchtime, it's God. And in January of 1858, so he started this in September, in January of the next year, the newspapers started reporting it. And this was headline news for a long time. The headline simply said, the progress of revival. And they wanted to keep up to date with the numbers of people attending. One of the records say, you know, about this newspaper reporter, he had to run. I mean, he had to go on a horse and a buggy. He had to keep going from church to church to count how many people are attending prayer. To report, you know, this is the current count of people in prayer. And... uh, Because the newspapers picked it up, the news spread and other cities in in across America started having midday prayer, 12 to 1, just prayed all across. And uh, the amazing thing about these prayer meetings was there was no preaching, no message. There was no great revivalist. You're not going there to hear a preacher or a sermon. Only prayer, 12 to 1. In the prayer meetings, every person is allowed to pray only three, three minutes. You stand up, pray, sit down. That's it. No long prayers. They had a little order there. There's no great preaching. But here's the thing. Unsaved people came to the prayer meeting without any sermon. They got saved. They gave their hearts to Jesus. To the point where in New York City alone, 10,000 people were being converted every week. Every week. Their lives were being changed. The move of God's spirit in New York City was so great. uh, It says that when the ships came to the harbor, 
people in the ships came under conviction and there they gave lives, their lives to Christ. There's something unusual. And amazing testimonies of transformed lives and God's glorious presence have been recorded. In March 1858, a religious journal reported, the large cities and towns from Maine to California are sharing in this great and glorious work. There is hardly a village or town to be found where a special divine power does not appear displayed. The New York Observer, reporting of what was happening in Waco, Texas, said this, of a, a report of a mighty move of God, day and night, the church has been crowded during the meeting. Never before in Texas have we seen a whole community so effectually under a religious influence thoroughly regenerated. Now, the meetings were getting so crowded that in every place they had to have 8 o'clock meeting, 12 o'clock meeting, 6 p.m. meeting for people to come and pray. That's a good problem to have because people wanted to pray. Now, here, the, here is the result of all of this. Revival historian James Edward Orr, he, he estimated, he did the calculations, he said, and estimated in one year, between 1857 to 1858, in one year, one million people were converted and another one million church members were revived. It is estimated that in 1858, there were 50,000 conversions per week. 50,000 per? Now this is true. This is not like some story, not not religious fiction. (laughs) This is history, our history. The revival started in New York in 1857 spread to many other parts of the world, to Wales, to Scotland, Ireland, Britain, Germany, Sweden, Netherlands, West Indies, South Africa, Indonesia, just spread. And when you look at the history of the church, and you will see this in the timeline, when you look at the events between 1857 to 1861, you will see in that four-year period, revivals across the globe. That period in the history of the church was a very unusual period because there was revival happening at the same time Across continents. Something very unusual. And you can read accounts of these revivals. I just shared one of them. Called the layman's prayer revival. What can we learn from this? Of course once again. Earnest prayer for revival was going on. At least for four full years. Before, uh, before all of this. Uh, several years before all of this. Prayer was being. Thing. Uh, a spark. A simple spark that lit the blaze. One idea in the mind of a man. Call for afternoon prayer. If you go to Jeremiah Lafayette and say, Hey, did you think you were going to spark a revival? He'll say, No, I'd be happy if 20 people came. I don't think in his mind he was thinking something that was going to affect the whole nation and spread to other nations was in his mind. Just one little idea. Call for afternoon. So he printed a few pamphlets, gave it around. Six people came. But that spark lit the blaze. That was enough for the Holy Spirit to change a nation. That's all the Holy Spirit wanted. And he lit the fire. He set a blaze. The other interesting thing about this revival, as I mentioned earlier, was it was just lay people. It was working people. People who were doing work in New York and other people there. There was no great revivalist, no great preacher, no famous name, nothing. That's why today it's called the layman's revival, prayer revival. Newspaper was just became a tool that helped spread, become a catalyst. 
for revival, spread the news of revival, and others joined in. And we see the global impact. What began on Fulton Street in New York City affected the globe. Amen? One last story. Something that happened right here in our own nation. In 1905, in Mukti Mission, Pandita Ramabai was born in a Brahmin family in 1858. And then some years later, she became a Christian. In 1889, she was very moved by seeing the young Brahmin, she called them children, who had be, become widowed because they got married to very older men. But the men died. Here these basically young girls who had been widowed. No, and the family rejected those girls because they felt it was the girl's fault that the old man died. You know. So she opened up a, a home called Sharda Sadan House of Learning in Mumbai for these Brahmin widows who were still Young girls, they're ignored by their families. And then in 1901, Ramabai opened a girls' school in Kirgaon in near Mumbai. Uh, she called it Mukti Mission. She had 2,000 girls in that school. Now, during that time, Ramabai was hearing about revivals, things happening in other parts of the world, people praying for revival. So she joined in. She started praying herself for revival, for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. She also was writing a prayer letter. It was called Mukti Prayer Bell. And she was encouraging other people to start praying for revival, for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was at that time in 1892, another missionary, you'll read about his story in the, in the book, John Hyde by name. He came to Punjab and he was known as Praying Hyde. He was a man who prayed and God used him to, uh, uh, to bring revival among the missionaries at that time. So he was also there. He was uh, uh, giving a call to pray, pray for revival. So Ramabai was influenced by these things. She started praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and prayer and fasting for that. And then in 1901, she called uh, 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 for a special prayer time among her own girls. And uh, uh, they saw a move of God. 1,200 of those girls were baptized within the next two months. And so they continued praying. In 1904, she heard about the Welsh Revival. She was encouraged by that. And some of the missionaries from the Welsh Revival actually came to northeast India in the Khasi Hills. And revival hit India in the Khasi Hills around the same time. She heard about that as well. And that's why today most of northeast India has a strong Christian influence. So she heard about that as well and she was very encouraged to pray. And so when she heard about this, she actually got all her children... The, the girls in her home in Mukti Mission to meet and pray daily for the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what happened. On the 29th of June, 1905, the Holy Spirit moved powerfully on this large gathering of girls and women. Many were left weeping, confessing their sins and crying out for more of the Holy Spirit. On the next day, June 30th, as, as a Pandit Ramabai was speaking again. There was a great move of the Holy Spirit. People were moved to tears. And they began to see visions. Some faces were literally shining with heavenly light. The little girls were lost for hours in the presence of Jesus. Loving and worshipping and praying. Uh, many of them began to sing and speak in tongues and have dreams and visions. And, and they began to see unusual things happen. These girls starting to prophesy. And the move of God in that, that community was so great. They began to see miraculous supply of food, food multiplying. 
and uh, uh, the girls were having sensations as though they were on fire. Uh, the fire of God would come upon them and, and they would be on fire. Now, Minnie Abrams was an American Methodist missionary who had come to India some years ago in 1887. And in 1898, she left her work and she joined Pandita Ramabai in the Mukti Mission. And she was the one who recorded everything that she saw. And here's what she writes in, in her recording. On that morning of June 29, 1905, 3.30 a.m., she was woke, woken up by one of these girls who came to her and said, something is happening there among the girls. The Holy Spirit had started moving among them, 3.30 in the morning. So she saw, and, and to her it seemed like there was fire there. So she literally took buckets of water. She ran to pour, you know, pour water to, to get rid of the fire. And she realized there was no physical fire. And the children, they started calling it the baptism of fire. When the Holy Spirit was moving upon them. And they felt this, this burning, this, this, this flames among them. To causing them to turn to God. And uh, now Pandita Ramabai, she did not want news about this happening in, in her community to spread around. So for a long time she kept it secret. So just leave it, keep it within. But many Abrahams was recording all these things. And uh, during that time, they began extended hours of teaching the, the girls and the young women, the women in the word of God. Teaching them, equipping them uh, in prayer and Bible study and getting them ready to take the gospel out and evangelize. And then at the right time, she began sending teams of 60 to go preach the gospel in the neighboring areas. The others would stay back and pray for the teams that went out on outreach. And only at a much later stage did Pandit Ramabai publicly start preaching and talking about the revival there that took place. And she formed teams of women, which were called, they were called Bible women. And she sent them out to different parts uh, to preach and talk about this revival and, and to evangelize. Many Abrahams, here's another very interesting thing. Many Abrahams, she wrote about this revival. She published a book called The Baptism of the Holy Ghost and Fire in 1906. She sent a copy of, listen to this carefully, she sent a copy of, her, of this book to some of her former classmates, May Hoover and her husband, Willis Hoover, who were Methodist missionaries in Chile. So she sent a copy of her book to them in Chile. They read the book, they were inspired to pray, and that sparked a revival in Chile that spread all across that country and gave birth today to what is called as the Pentecostal movement in Chile. Now think about it. One book carried the fires of revival from India to another continent and gave birth to a revival that affected an entire nation there. Amen? What can we learn from Mukti Mission? Once again, it's prayer, that really earnest prayer, ongoing prayer that gave birth to revival. We see how Pandit Ramabai stewarded the revival very carefully. She didn't go out and unnecessarily publicize it. She strengthened her people and they could then become carriers of revival. Uh, she consolidated the work and they became uh, instruments that they could be used. And we also see how the revival spread. So much so, what happened here in, 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 in the Mumbai area, Pune area now spread all the way to Chile, affected another country uh, through the sharing of the news of revival. 
Do you think God, the Holy Spirit, can do these things again? Amen. And I think we need it. Because, you know, thank God for our programs. Thank God for Catalyst and Campus Elevate and all the other outreaches we do. It's, it's, it's good. At least some people are being affected. But we need much more than that to impact a city of about 11 million people. We need a visitation of God. We need a visitation of God across this nation. Amen. Because that is what is going to see the church rising to the being the kind of people we're supposed to be. And that is what is going to bring in the harvest. And we're not talking about God, you know, come and give us a nice happy time kind of thing. We're not talking about uh, just a good time. We're saying every revive, every visitation of God must become a habitation of God. It must become the dwelling place of God. It then must become the move of God that affects cities and nations. Amen? That's what we want. But as you look at church history, there is one common denominator to almost every revival. And it is simply this. A people who were desperate who gave themselves to praying and asking God specifically for revival. And you can use any language you want. Call it revival, call it visitation, call it awakening, call it a move of God. Whatever, it doesn't matter the language, God understands. But there was a people who were desperate saying, God, we want a deluge of your spirit. We want more than what we have. We want the Holy Spirit to come upon us, move upon us, move through us, shake our city, shake our nation. A people who prayed. It was not casual prayer. It was desperate prayer. Amen. It was daily prayer. It was weekly prayer. Monthly prayer. They pursued God. And it was consistent. It was ongoing. They prayed for you. Sometimes for years. And they saw the God move amongst them. Even Roberts who was a revivalist. Used in the Welsh revival. You will again read his story. We will probably talk about that Welsh revival in detail some other time. Towards the end of his life, he was asked the question, can Wales see another revival like what we saw in your time? His response was, yes, but will someone pay the price? Will someone pay the price? So he said, yes, we can. But will someone pay the price? Will there be a people who will press into God and say, God, we are desperate. We need you. We need a visitation. We need revival. We need the move of the Holy Spirit through the church for the sake of the church and for the sake of souls all across our city, all across our nation. Will there be people who will be willing to pay the price for it? So this morning as we close, I just want to impress this on our hearts. Yes, this is possible. God has done this many times in the past across many continents where there have been such moves of the Spirit that have gathered unusual numbers of people into the church that has awakened ordinary believers into becoming people who are passionate, on fire for God. This has happened many, many times in the history of the church. It, and I believe God is waiting to do it again and again and here in our city, in our own nation. The challenge is would we do something? Would we pray? Could we pray? And to begin with, we need to prepare our hearts for revival. 
We need to have the right heart condition to start praying for revival. And here's what God has instructed in 2 Chronicles 7.14. I'm going to read two verses and then we close. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, pray, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll do something in their lands. I'm ready to do something in your lands. For us, it's Bangalore City. For us, it's India. I'm willing to do something in your lands. But are you willing to humble yourself? That means we say, God, we are desperate. We need you, God. Our programs, our work, our efforts, our energy can only take us so much. But we humble ourselves. We do not put any dependence on the tools or the strategies we have. All that is nice. But God, we humble ourselves. We turn from our wicked ways. We turn from our worldliness. We say, God, the one thing that we really want is you and your presence and you, God. We turn from other things. We seek his face. That becomes the all-consuming thing. What are you consumed about? About the face of God. I want him. I want his presence. And pray. God says, I'll do something in your lands. In your lands. I'll do something. This ties us back to the sermon we heard last Sunday on the nine blessed attitudes. The heart conditions that Jesus talked about. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means you're in a state of dependence. Yes, we have everything and yet we are poor. We are in poverty of spirit. We say, God, we are dependent on you. Without you, we can do nothing. Blessed are those who mourn. They are broken. They're crying out for something. They will be comforted. Comfort from God doesn't mean God says, okay, chale, chale, that's not it. Comfort from God simply means the thing that you're crying about, I'm going to do. The thing that you're broken about, I'm going to step in and resolve, address. Blessed are those, he said, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, after the things of God. Do you hunger and thirst? Is there a pull in your spirit? See, we pastors try so hard to push. Right? Here, take it. Oh, you can't understand. Let me explain the Hebrew and the Greek. Take this. No, I can't understand. Okay, let me read from the Amplified Bible. Take it. You know? We try to push, push, push. But God is saying, blessed are not those who are pushed into it, but blessed are those who hunger and... My question to you is, what is the pull in your spirit? Is there a pull? Or are you waiting for the pastor to push? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. They will be. Is there a pull in your spirit? That's the heart. The condition of our heart is, God, I'm pulling on you. I want you. I want. And because I'm desperate, I go after Go after it. Praying, studying this word. Pull in the spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful. They're taking care of the relationships. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're walking in right relationships with people. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're standing up for doing what's right. They're not quitting. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. They're willing to be identified, associated with the name of Jesus. They're not afraid. That's the resolve of the heart. And that, I believe, is the heart condition we need to prepare ourselves to pray for revival. In Hosea, the 10th chapter, the 12th verse, we close with this. Hosea says, Sow for yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you. 
Just break up your fallow ground. What is fallow ground? It is uncultivated ground. It is ground that has been left idle. And so now it's kind of dried up and, and you know, you have all the clay and all of those hard things formed on it. And, you know, when we go drive around the village, you kind of see those grounds. You see those land that has not been cultivated for a while. It's just left like that. And God is saying, now break it up. Begin to plow in it. Break up your fallow ground. And it's time to seek the Lord. Now, when you talk in spiritual terms, what is fallow ground? Spiritually, I believe the fallow ground, the, 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 the ground of uh, worship and intimacy. That's ground we need to break and keep that broken, uh, keep working on it. The, the ground of, of uh, prayer and fasting. The ground of meditation and the word of God. The ground of, of, uh, of faith and confession. All of these spiritual areas are, are, are areas where we, we cultivated. They're going to produce and harvest for us. And God, just break up your fallow ground. Don't leave these areas of your life uncultivated. Are you with me so far? Do these things. Get into it. Start doing it. It's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rain righteousness on us. He's going to rain on us. Amen. Meaning, come on us in an unlimited fashion. Unlimited measure. I believe we need to press in for revival. That's what's going to change our city. You know, we've had many crusades and many campaigns and many things come and go through our city. You know, it's like nothing much has impacted our city. It comes and goes. But I think a visitation from God will change this city. I believe it. And that's what we need to pray for. Amen? And from here, we want it to impact our nation. Impact this nation. So let's prepare our hearts to pray for revival. And however God wants to deal with you, it's fine. Say, God, use me to pray for revival. Let's rise to our feet, please. Let's call our worship team up here for a few moments. As we get ready to close, let us have faith. Let us believe that God can do these things again in our day, in our time. Throughout the history of the church, there have been numerous revivals. Numerous visitations. And God did it in response to ordinary people. It was not some great evangelist, not some great pastor. Just people praying. God responded to it. If my people would pray. If they will turn from their wicked ways. If they will humble themselves. God says, I'll do something in their land. I'll do it. This morning, if you feel in your heart that, God, I just want to come into that place where my heart is ready, first of all, to pray for revival. Then would you ask the Lord, say, God, get my heart right. Get my heart ready so that I can pray. I can do my part in asking you to reign upon our city, upon our church and our city, God. And asking you to visit us. God, get my heart right. Get my heart right. Help me to be poor in spirit. Broken in spirit. Pure in heart. Get my heart right, oh God. So that I can pray. Oh God, we pray that you will stir us out of our commonplace Christianity. Stir us out 
of our comfortable church going oh god and stir us today to step into what may be difficult what may be uncomfortable which is to pray and seek you for a visitation to seek you for a move of your holy spirit that what you've done in days gone by you will do it again oh god stir us up to do that holy spirit only you can work in our hearts only you can change our hearts only you can make us a people who are desperate for revival for a visitation of heaven on earth for an outpouring of the holy spirit that will shake our city Oh God where in a week we will see 50000 people come into the kingdom in a week where we will see tens of thousands of people turning to Jesus only you can do such things but we pray and ask you will oh God pray and ask you as we take a few moments to sing please feel free to respond however you feel the holy spirit moving in your heart feel free to respond Set the captives free. Leave 
Father, we just thank you that we could look back at these stories and look back at the things you have done, Father. And God, that in our day, in our time, we could set ourselves before you and say, God, do it again. We want this. We want in our day, we want to be in the midst of revival. We want to be a community that's saturated with God. We want the fires of revival spreading all across the city and across the nation. God, we want it in our day, in our time. So we pray, Father, you will do this. We give you thanks. And we give you praise, Father. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Unto him be glory in the church through Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning. If you need prayer, you want me to pray with you, we'll be here most welcome to come and we'll be happy to pray with you god bless have a great sunday we're going to continue this next sunday amen god bless we trust that this message was a blessing to you we'd love to hear from you you can email us at contact at apcwo.org also visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources Thank you for listening and God bless you.